I'd like to begin this morning with a reading from the New Testament from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Now, uh, to set this up, let's remember that the Apostle Paul, who was very, very close to Timothy, Timothy was his charge, Paul was Timothy's mentor, this is among the last words that Paul writes, and it's important he puts it toward the end of the book, the, the letter rather, so that Timothy hears this as one of the last charges from Paul to him. It's very important, and it's important then for us as well. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you and I know that throughout the world there are people who have questions about faith, and you and I are people who have questions about faith as well. And it's been a joy these past weeks to uh, explore these questions through the Explore God series as we've talked about things such as, does God exist, and if so, What's his name? Who is Jesus? What about the problem of evil? These are, these are foundational questions for people's sense of well-being in life and a sense of direction and a sense for how we, how we live our lives. And inevitably, it seems to me these questions lead into the issue of truth, specifically sources of truth. How do I know that what's being said is true? Does this word echo resonate in my life in such a way that that it leads me into a place that I think truth is. And so really then below that, where do I get my deepest and most reliable answers for the questions that I have in life? What are the reliable sources? And throughout the sermon series, it, these very questions as they have come up have almost always pointed then to Scripture. We have answered things based on the claims of the Bible, based on stories from the Bible, uh, based upon conclusions from the Bible. And so with every one of those questions, we've offered a biblical answer. And so it's only natural to ask the question then, well, if you're taking all your answers from this book, is this book reliable? Is it trustworthy? Is it something that I, I can trust to gain the answers and give my life to the answers that I hear? Is it trustworthy to lead me in a direction that it calls me to lead in my life? So is the Bible reliable? When I was late into my senior year of high school, um, after a fairly serious illness, I began to ask questions about the meaning of life. I wanted to know if life was more than just the football game on Friday night and the after-game dance afterwards, and the, and the job at the gas station. That was really my world at that point. And so um, I became curious about the issue of God, and in Southern California in the early 70s, you could find pretty much anything you wanted. To say that there was a variety of religious experience going on there would be to um, underestimate and to understate what things were happening. So I embarked on this quest. I had been raised kind of in the church up to that point, and I'd been to Sunday school and vacation Bible school, and I had that sort of knowledge of who God was, but I thought, well, gosh, if I want to know who God is, then that's all I've got. Maybe it's not enough. And so I began to read into and to talk to people who were based in other religions, different forms of Buddhism, a couple groups we would call cults these days. And, and as I examined through this over a period of months, I just 
was not getting to the place where I felt I was getting answers that I could build my life on. I was not getting truth I felt was reliable or meaningful or something that I wanted to base my life upon. And so, kind of as a last resort, this is a poor comment really, but as a last resort, I went to my pastor at our church. And Reverend John, who is just the most wonderful guy, he was in some ways kind of chaplain to our whole small town. He had a tremendous impact uh, on our community and was just a really wonderful, fine guy. I sat down with him and he gave me a few answers and then he said, you know, why don't you read the Bible? And I thought, what a novel idea. I should read the Bible. And so he gave me what was very common in those days, this little New Testament called Good News for Modern Man. You don't have to raise your hand because it will date you if you recognize it, okay? Uh, But it was very important for me. It was a translation that was very accessible and very easy to read. Uh, It was only the New Testament. And so I said, okay. And so he gave that to me and I, I started reading. As I read and as I read more, the Bible spoke to me. It spoke to my heart. It represented a Jesus that I didn't know. And it moved me toward a life that God was demanding of me and challenging me to that made sense. Uh, The words of Jesus, the commands in the Old Testament now began to make sense because I was paying attention to it. I was interested in it. And so the Bible was really my entryway into the faith. Uh, I had been kind of raised in the church, but, but I didn't grab onto it until I started to read through the Bible. So there's a sense in which it was very simple because I read it and it, it, it um, influenced the trajectory of my life from that time on. But it wasn't simple in that as I got farther and farther into adulthood and as I got through college and as I studied the Bible in seminary, um, you might be surprised or maybe not to know that not every seminary professor believes in the authority of scripture. And so I was being challenged all the way through as well. But I found that as I continued to read the Bible, as I continued to examine the evidence about its reliability, that it continued to speak to me in deeper and deeper ways. And so the challenges both of the text and the challenges of my life, have con- God has continued to answer those and to meet those in some very important and wonderful ways. And I want to talk about that this morning, about what it means for that Bible to be reliable for you as well as for me. I'd like to take the image, if you will, and this has been used many times before, of a three-legged stool. And any stool with three legs, if it doesn't have one of the legs there, it doesn't work. If you take one of them out, you're going to fall down. If you take two of them out, you're on a unicycle at that point. So I want to look at the three-legged stool this morning of what I'll call critical evaluation of the Bible. And then secondly, the Bible's own claims. And then our personal experience with what Scripture leads us to do and to be. So is the Bible reliable? Let's look first of all at a critical point of view. How does it stack up against investigations into its reliability? I think it's fair to say, I know it's fair to say, that the Bible is the single most carefully examined book in the world, and it has been throughout all of history. And it's evaluated in a number of what we would call objective merits, especially whether the words have been reliably passed down through the years. Now, we begin, of course, with the issue of how do they get on a page to begin with, and that is that, and we'll deal with some of that when we get to what the Bible says about itself, but as people began to experience God, 
as God inspired people to experience and to know Scripture and to know Jesus Christ later, these stories began to be handed down in the oral tradition. And the oral tradition in ancient colors is, excuse me, cultures, <laughs> is not like the kind of game of telephone that we play as kids. There are some very strict guidelines to how the stories continue to be told. And the stories are guarded jealously because if it's not written down and it needs to be passed down from person to person, it needs to be passed down accurately, each and every person who tells it. And so it was written down much later after the stories had been told, but it was written down with a surprising amount of accuracy. And one of the things that we find in any kind of ancient literature is an academic discipline called textual criticism. And what that means is people will take a version of something and they'll compare it to other versions that they have in order to determine whether or not um, it's consistent. So we're gonna bring a, a table up onto the screen for you this morning. And if, I hope you can read it, but it lists at the very top of it four works of the ancient Greek world. And these were works that historians absolutely trust as giving us a window into ancient Greek culture and the Greek world. And you'll notice that they were written um, at the time they were written in 400 BC and then 100 AD and 50, 58 to 50 BC. But notice then the oldest copy. And notice the gap then, the time lapse between when it was written and when the copies that we have um, were, were discovered. And you'll find it's over a thousand years on the first three and almost a thousand years on the fourth one. But historians totally trust that we have an accurate view of Greek history because of these letters, these books. And you'll notice also that there are only eight copies with some, 20 for another, and 10, which means that they only have a few copies to compare in terms of consistency. Now, if you look at the New Testament, you'll find that the first copies of the New Testament were written down just 30 years after the events had happened. And so the oral tradition comes into play there really within a generation of people or two generations of people. You'll find that all of them were put together in a time where people really remembered the stories and the eyewitness accounts could be checked against one another. But perhaps most importantly, you'll see that we have some 20,000 copies of the Bible to compare with them. Now, as, we've, as scholars have continued to compare them and if they've looked through things, they've found that that there are very, very few deviations to things, and most of them have to do with spelling. Um, maybe there's an occasional word that's inscribed a little bit differently. But what we have here is a tremendous body of evidence that speaks to the, the consistency and the reliability of Scripture in a way that no other book in human history has ever been examined. So when people question, can the Bible possibly be reliable because after all it was collected over all these years, the best scholarship that we have says absolutely. Comparing it to other copies of itself and comparing it to other ancient things has helped us to know that it's very, very reliable. And that, that has been buttressed even more by archaeology. Every time something is discovered in regard to the biblical text or to the, the life of Israel, it confirms what we find written in Scripture. And of course, I, I'm sure you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered some 50-some years ago. Um, a young boy was out in the Palestinian wilderness uh, looking around for his sheep and found a cave. And long story short, 
that cave ended up being a library of a community called the Essenes in an area called Qumran. And those Dead Sea Scrolls were actually much older than many of the original language scrolls we had before then. So you'll find that earlier translations of the English Bible actually use newer manuscripts than the one we have today. So archaeology then tells us that what Scripture says is true. It's been there from the beginning. And then finally, the third objective evaluator would be the many prophecies in the Bible. And did they come true? Pastor Dan shared last week that there are some 300 prophecies just about the life of Jesus that have come through. Come true. What would be the odds for that? I mean, they're monumental. So we have the, the text of the Bible. We have the archaeology that confirms it. We have the prophecies that lead to its, its truth. And so I think we can call the Bible reliable. We can call it reliable for what it claims and for what it teaches. But that's not the only factor because the Bible says some things about itself as well. And as I read before, 2 Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, and for training so that the person of God may be equipped for every good work. So the Bible claims about itself that it's inspired by God. The Greek word means literally God breathed. God breathed his word in this. Now God also used men and women to to tell his story to them and through them and they then wrote it down. But God's hand was on it. It was not just the hand of men and women who heard something that they thought might be true. It was God working in a supernatural way to teach God's unique perspective and God's point of view across all of eternity. And just as Jesus Christ was fully human and fully God, the Bible is for us a book which was in which God used human hands to teach his inspired truth. It is indeed God breathed. One of the things I love about the Bible is its honesty. I would personally be suspect if everything in the Bible fit really, really neatly together, and if every story ended with a happy ending, and if every character was just really wonderful. I mean, we find those people in the Bible, and it's wonderful to see that. But we also have people that we revere as great people of faith who are deeply flawed human beings. Moses made some tremendous mistakes. King David made some awful mistakes. The Apostle Peter, who we think was so wonderful, and I I think he was a wonderful guy. I, I admire his life. He made some horrific mistakes as well. So the honesty of the Bible about itself and about the people speaks to me of the validity that is painting the picture of the reality of human beings in our sinfulness, but also in our forgiveness and in grace. And in doing so also gives to us an honest portrayal of who God is. Because it tells us that God is love and God cares about us, God is concerned about our lives, God wants very much to meet each and every one of us in a personal way. But it also tells us that God is a holy God and that there are boundaries about things to believe. There are limits to our behavior. There are things that we do as people that are just wrong. And so God, while God loves us and so loved us to send his son, is also a holy God who demands from us a type of behavior that's different from the rest of the world. And so that to me also begins to to validate 
the internal witness of Scripture to itself, that it shows the lives of real people like you and me. We can relate to them. We can relate to them in their highs. We can relate to them in their lows. We can relate to them in their faithfulness. We can relate to them in their failures. We can relate to them in the tremendous ministry that they do. We can relate to them also in their sinfulness. And so what Scripture says about itself for us is that it's useful for us as a guide, that it's profitable, that it has benefit for us that no other book has in what it addresses. And indeed, we ask questions, Lord, how should I live my life? What decision should I make in this regard or that? And frankly, friends, probably 90% of the questions we ask about our lives are already answered in the pages of Scripture. Now, it's not going to tell us what car to buy. <laughs> it's not going to tell us what vacation to take. But it's going to tell us how we're to live. It tells us what we can stake our lives on in terms of believing. It tells us how we should act morally. It tells us how we should act ethically in regard to other people to be uh, God's vehicles of justice and righteousness in the world. So it's profitable for us in what it addresses. That's the basic posture we take when we come to Scripture. Secondly, it teaches us things that no other book can teach us because it doesn't only give us an ethical system as other religions do. It opens a door for us or a window into the very person of God with whom we can have a personal relationship. So while it gives us boundaries, and we'll talk about those in a moment, it goes far beyond that in inviting us into a personal relationship with God. No other religion does that. No other religious book does that. But we're, we're invited then to know this God that we read about on these pages. And we are given what it calls reproof and correction. It gives us the law which tells us the boundaries that we have for life, but it also reminds us of God's love. And so it warns us from doing the wrong thing, but it offers for us correction rather than condemnation. It helps us to develop right doctrine and right belief in order that we might be trained in righteousness, which is doing the right thing according to God's law, that our lives then would give evidence that they've been changed by the Holy Spirit, that God has instructed us and we've listened. We've made decisions based upon what God has instructed us. And so the life application, while it includes correct doctrine, goes far beyond that also, far beyond intellectual knowledge, to the way we treat other people in the world. And even though we see many times in Scripture where God seems to be acting quite severely toward folks, we also know that more than any other religious community, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel invited even the sojourner in their gates. The sojourner was protected. The alien was protected. The foreigner was invited to experience all the benefits of the covenant community. And so the Bible is without prejudice in that sense. As we hear later on in Paul's letter, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. There's an open door. And so as we're trained in righteousness, it challenges our prejudices. It challenges even our bigotry if we have that. It challenges our narrowness, our parochialism, and our self-interest. And so one of the things I love about the Bible is that as it portrays and illustrates these principles by the lives of real people, it also invites us then to go therefore and to do likewise.
So thirdly, is the Bible reliable from what I'd call a subjective point of view? We have an objective evaluation. We have the Bible's claims about itself and how it shapes communities and lives. But what about how you and I experience this last leg of the triangle? How does it relate, relate in influencing us? Well, one of the things I have to say, first of all, is it won't influence us at all if we're not reading it. So if we're not reading the Bible, then it's probably not fair to talk about what it doesn't do. What I want to do is invite you this morning to open up the Bible and to read it. And I invite you to do so by opening up at one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, which tell the story of Jesus, which point to the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and which leads us in some very practical ways, not only to know Jesus, but his band of disciples and other folks, and helps us then to say, do I want to walk with Jesus as they did? When we see God working in the lives of others and it invites us to be part of that, then it begins to shape us in ways that it can't if we're not reading it. And so I know it can seem daunting. It's a, it's a big book. Um, some of it's got pretty little type. Some of it's really confusing. Don't start in Leviticus, please. Uh, don't even start in Numbers or Deuteronomy. Uh, start in one of the Gospels or start in the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible. Because we need to start somewhere and the Bible is given to us in order that we might benefit from it and not just have it on the shelf. If your Bible has dust on it, the thing to do right now is dust it off, open it up, begin to let it bless you and begin to let some of the things I've said today filter into you and say, hmm, does this apply to me? Does it work for me? Can I put these principles into practice? And as we do, I believe you'll begin to, we'll begin to find even more validity into Scripture because it confirms in our lives the truth that we see in the lives of other people. It calls us to grow in love. It calls us to grow in service and to benefit others. It helps to work in and through us from the inside out as the Holy Spirit meets us in our lives. We live among an earthly, sinful view of life in the world. We can't get away from it. It's on the billboards, it's on the televisions, it's on our devices. We have to find another way to be influenced. And the Bible addresses those inner needs for us, needs for forgiveness from the sin that we know we have, freedom from the failures that we know we commit, and, and a sense that God loves us to meet the insecurities that some of us live with. So it helps to make us complete from the inside. It also help us to, helps us to look outside into how we live our lives in relation to other people too. And it calls us in a love for God and others that we are not naturally inclined to take. It calls us to reach out to the poor and the oppressed. It calls us to clothe the naked and to feed the hungry. It calls us to live a life that has eyes and ears open to address and to help the weakest in our culture. And I don't think that comes naturally to us, but scripture challenges us to do that. And as we begin to act upon it, it weaves us then into relationships with other believers and in churches where we bring beauty to the world. We bring to the world the grace that God offers for us. So from a subjective point of view, I can tell you from my life, the reading that began with this has totally changed the course of my life. And not just vocationally. 
I mean, I, I believe I'm a way better person than I would have been if I'd never read the Bible. And believe me, I've got a long way to go. But don't we all? And that's part of what the fellowship believers of believers is, as we fellowship together, as we study scripture, as we move ahead together, and we find that we all, in some way, share some of these same problems, that God's solutions work for us just as consistently. Many years ago in 1914, Ernest Shackleton took off um, from England to do something that no one had ever done before. And that was to traverse Antarctica from one side to the other across the South Pole. Now disaster struck the ship when um, the ship's name was Endurance, became entrapped in ice and eventually was crushed. The hull was crushed because of what the ice did on it. So the men were all stranded on Elephant Island and in a desperate attempt to do something other than all dying down there, Shackleton took five other people and took a lifeboat and tried to traverse the rest of the way in order to get some help. Men by the name of Frank Worsley, who had navigated the course, was with him, and using only a compass and a sextant, for 15 days they battled treacherous seas, massive storms, waves up to 100 feet high, and eventually navigated the course to reach land safely. Shackleton found another ship, returned, and rescued every one of his men, every single one. Now, if they hadn't had a compass, they never would have made it back to land in order to find another ship to rescue the people. And I think that's a, um, a legitimate example for us of what the Bible gives to us. It gives us a compass to help us find our way home. It gives us a compass to live our lives in a way that's faithful to God. It gives us a compass in order to order and direct our lives in such a way that we feel peace and we experience the love of God. So is the Bible reliable? Well, I want to ask you, even today, to open the Bible and to begin reading it and ask yourself that question. Listen to how it speaks to you and how it leads you forward. And I trust that it's going to speak to you in the same way as it spoke to the psalmist in Psalm 119 when it's written in Scripture, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. It's not burdensome, it's something that the psalmist loved. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever with me. It doesn't push us away from the challenges of life, but it makes us wise to be able to navigate the way through. He writes, I have more insight than all my teachers for I meditate on your statutes. As we take it seriously and deeply, it broadens us and deepens us. I have more understanding than the elders even for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. And I trust as you read the scriptures that that will be your reaction as well, that as you are in touch with the grace of God extended to us, the boundaries that God gives us in order to live lives that are safe and beneficial for other people, the call to give ourselves away to others, that our response then will be one in which we receive the grace of God for us. 
So if you doubt this morning or have no faith, if you're not sure what the Bible says, I, I invite you to read and to see how God meets you there. And if you have faith, to examine the place of the Bible in your life right now. And if it's not your intimate companion, to reintroduce yourself then to the Bible. One of the things I want to do this morning at the very end of the service is that especially if you've come today and you don't have a Bible, especially that's readable for you, I have a number of copies of the Gospel of John and if you would like one of those, I would like to give it to you. So that as I have asked you to begin reading this week, I may give you the tool to go ahead and to do that. So at the end of the service, after the benediction, um, if you'll come forward, I'll be happy to give you one of those if you would like it. And let me close then with a, a quote that I put on the very cover of your bulletin today from the Reverend Kenneth Chafin, uh, Baptist pastor. He says, the basis of my confidence in the Bible and its trustworthiness has grown out of my continuing relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the living word and whom I serve as my Lord and my Savior. Because as we read through the written word of God, you and I are introduced to the one and only living word of God, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this day that you not only call to us and invite us to be with you, but you give to us your word. You give to us assurance of your grace, knowledge of who you are, and you issue to us a challenge to live in your comfort and to follow you in our lives. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.